time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. I know this is a really hard time for everyone. We're facing a killer virus, economic pain, and all the frustrations of being cooped up at home. Believe me, I have two teenagers to deal with. But the worst thing we can do is let up now, triggering a second coronavirus wave that causes more death and economic chaos. What you're doing is working. You're saving lives. So let's all hang in there and please stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program.com. Okay, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is, uh, well, kind of a self described uh, entrepreneur aholic. He's written a book called The Rugged Entrepreneur, What Every Disruptive Business Leader Should Know. And uh, it's penned under his name, Carlton Scott Andrew. He goes by Scott, and he joins me by phone. Scott, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Tom, thanks for having me. Um, Scott, a couple things I wanted to to dig into right off the bat, and then we'll we'll see where it goes. But... uh, it says, what every disruptive business leader should know. And you say disruptive like it's a good thing. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> In some worlds, I think it depends on, I think I've read a definition that says disruptive means something good to one party and not as good to the other party. Um, but in our terms, it's, it's um, improving a market space with an idea, or not necessarily a new idea, but um, adding customer obsessive value to a business or a product or both that creates a positive growth change in an industry itself and it's it's we target industries that we think are disruptible in that way and it's produced some very fast growing companies we've our main franchising company has been on the 5,000 list in the top 10th to 20th percentile three years in a row and should be there again this year so disruption, in other words, is is really shaking up the status quo. 
Yeah, it's um, like in the franchising world, Tom. We we identified a disruptable um, cultural dynamic where most of the vast majority of franchising companies, the the relationship and the culture that exists between franchisor and franchisees is somewhat uh, has an animosity to it. It's a lot like labor versus management in the union world. And we believe that was a highly disruptable scenario. And we launched retail service systems with the purpose of being the most customer-obsessed, friendly franchising company in America. And in doing that, we made our mission statement, a two-word mission statement, empowering entrepreneurs. And if we, we knew if we stayed focused on our customers, the, the franchisees, they would focus on the ultimate end user of products and services that they sold. And um, it's been amazing how disruptable that was and how good it's, it served us to choose that path. Well, another thing that I wanted to ask you about is this whole notion of being a serial entrepreneur. Most of the entrepreneurs that I know and the entrepreneur programs that I'm familiar with, whether they're college-based or, you know, people have written about them, um, really talk about uh, these these sorts of cases where somebody works in a... Uh, you know, in a salary job of some kind, but always wanted to do something else, open a restaurant or, um, you know, fix furnaces. I don't know, but they always wanted to do something else and get out on their own. And then they start those businesses and find out that they're, you know, that, that in order to, to make a go of a particular business, like a new restaurant or something, that that it's really kind of a 24-7 commitment. And you talk about having a lot of different businesses, and I just wonder how what you do is different than the people who chase a passion that they have. Is it more form than substance, or am I missing something? No, that's a really good question. Um, and when in my pursuit of quantifying and defining the term the rugged entrepreneur, I separate three different groups. I've, I've, I, I classify one group as what I call professional entrepreneurs, and those are people who they have a highly skilled scenario like a doctor or a lawyer. They're generally licensed and have to continue their education, um, and, and it's a, a defined skilled type entrepreneur. And a lot of people who become doctors, I would imagine, do that out of a pursuit of passion. And then there's what I call corporate entrepreneurs, and they're the person that you're speaking to who works some, works some type of career, you know, a good portion or maybe most of their life, but always had an itch on the inside to start their own business. And a lot of times they reach a point of pretty good success and have enough capital wherewithal to start a business. And they typically choose a very, very purist-type franchise model because it's, it's very much like owning a job. If you own a Chick-fil-A, you own it, and you, and you can have the pride of being an entrepreneur and a business owner, but, but you do everything the way they show you how to do it 
know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You don't, right. you, you really can't do anything of your own creativity. And that's not a bad thing, but I call that a corporate entrepreneur. And then the rugged entrepreneur is a person who has to go and figure most of it out themselves. And they a lot of times do have to pour you know, a huge amount of hours in because so much of what they're doing is a figure it out as you go. We call that building the airplane while you fly. <laughs> That's a scary notion. No wonder you got to be rugged. Um, but but that reminds me. I, I guess a, a model of that or an example of of that would be uh, Colonel Sanders when he opened his uh, his first fried chicken store in Kentucky. You know when he just had the one store, and he came up with the recipe and the, he made the chicken and figured out how he was going to serve it to people and all that. It it later became the kind of corporate operation that you mentioned. But, but you know, in the very beginning, it was... Drove around in a station wagon yeah. selling his recipe to convenience store people, restaurant people. Um, I, think, I think what I read about him is in his early 60s, he had gotten his first Social Security check and was a little depressed about that being what... His, his worth had hit at that point in time, and and he took the most valuable asset he believed he had, which was that chicken recipe, and <laughs> just hit the road in a station wagon. I think he had a little fryer-slash-pressure cooker, and he would take it in and hook it up and cook his fried chicken and let them taste it, and then basically was just licensing it to people originally. Yeah, and and that's, you know, that's, that's the kind of... Um creativity that that people wrestle with you know they have an idea but they're they're not exactly sure how to how to bring it into reality um and it's a perfect story tom of a rugged entrepreneur he he had an idea and a passion ray Kroc too thing, he was yeah yeah man he's a big one and and so there's there's a couple examples um but what about these people who just they they have that one thing they want to do, and they're they're just flat out not sure where to start. Well, and and it's a part of why I wrote the book to hope to to hopefully give that type of person a lot of the mental energy, um, especially in the fundamental elements, which was a fervent work ethic. Um, a healthy and humble pride, and that sounds those sound like they oppose each other a little bit. But uh, having humility and a healthy pride, it's you got to be humble to learn, and to be a disruptor in the positive sense, you got to really be able to disrupt yourself and to figure things out. And then once you are capable of disrupting yourself, uh, largely by learning, you can disrupt an organization or even an, an entire industry. And you should be proud of that. It's skill sets and, and proud of your work ethic and proud of what you produce. So, And then the, there's mental toughness and faith. And faith is, Steve Jobs said it really good, that you can't look forward from where you are today and see how the dots will connect. But you have to believe that in the future, when you look back, you will be able to see how they connected. And that was his view of faith. And 
that's where the ruggedness of an entrepreneur, one of the places it kicks in. The people who have that idea, ultimately, they're either going to lunge into it or they're not. And that separates, uh, I think, I heard one time graveyards are filled with the ideas of dead men. Yeah. It never got enacted. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's that's the part that I'm, you know, trying to uh, uh, peel back a little bit is this idea that that somebody has a, a good idea, but they, like with the case of you and your wife, Daphne, you have many businesses that have been successful nationally and internationally. And yet most people start a business and they're just completely overwhelmed by keeping that business going for one reason, because they think they have to do everything themselves. How do they pull back from being, you know, creator to manager? Oh, that's a really good question of insight. And the book doesn't address that as much, but it's a good question to answer because one of our secrets in business part of why we've owned so many companies is uh, we just acquired a distilling business in Tennessee. We own Rugged American Spirits, and it acquired Tennessee Hills Distillery. And we call it king-making. When you find an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur couple who are just so deep in the operational aspects of their business, working 50% of small business startups don't make it past five years. And very, very few of them get above a million dollars in revenue. Well, and it exhausts the people that are doing the business and trying to get it going. Absolutely. And then the more exhausted they are doing everything over time, the more frustrated they start to get because they don't know how to scale. And a part of our business building formula is to look for and acquire businesses who have that very thing happening and make kings or queens of the entrepreneur or entrepreneur couple who have hit that wall, so to speak, where they're working their knuckles bare and they're doing the bookkeeping, they're doing the marketing, they're doing the manufacturing, they're doing, they're handling and overseeing operations. And we come in and, and look to put them mainly in sales and distribution and have them be the face of the company and the brand storytelling for that company. And then we surround them with the right assets like accounting, legal services, um, better operations and manufacturing controls, and help them scale that business to where it could be really with them then for the first time. And they generally had to have been in business five years or more for us to look at it. But then they actually get the opportunity to work less and work on the things that were fun to them to begin with, which is generally the marketing and distribution and, and have a business team be surround them that handles the details that they got bogged down in. And that most people, Tom, don't figure that out. It's a part of why half the small business startups in America don't make it past five years because they ultimately feel like they're working so hard and not making enough money to justify that level of work that they reach a point where they've hit a ceiling of scalability and can't take it any higher. And they aren't sure how to get out of that rut. Exactly. More with Carlton Scott Andrew, the author of The Rugged Entrepreneur. Everybody's doing 
it on Brand New Dance Now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Thank you, and thank you all for tuning in. You know, we know that tough times don't last, but tough people do. We've been through a lot here in Michigan. We've been through crisis before, where the country needed their countrymen and countrywomen to pitch in collectively to get through a crisis and rise to the occasion. Michigan once was the arsenal of democracy to win World War II. We need that same spirit now. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals and first responders to stop the spread and to save lives. But we need your help too. The state has launched a new volunteer website at www.michigan.gov forward slash fight COVID-19 where trained medical professionals can register to serve their fellow Michiganders by assisting hospitals in fighting COVID-19. State residents can also use the site to find out how they can help in their local communities by giving blood or donating resources or needed medical supplies. Whether you're a medical professional looking to volunteer or you're someone who can give blood or donate to your local food bank, everyone can help out. To get through this, we must all do our part. Stay home, stay safe, and save lives. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. 
Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More with Carlton Scott Andrew, the author of The Rugged Entrepreneur, straight ahead. See, I have I have the opposite problem. I I rather than uh, loving the the promoting and marketing and all that. I, I like the actual production of my show, but the promoting and, and selling underwriting and all of that is is not something I'm particularly good at or fond of. And that's another thing that has to be scaled in some people's world because you're a rugged entrepreneur yourself, and you've chosen to do it in an industry that's seen – the digital media industry has seen so much change in the last 20 years. You know that better than I do, but – You've had to adjust to it, and I would take it your passion is in collecting the stories of all the people you interview and broadcasting those stories. So right. it probably takes an immense amount of passion to to do that day in and day out. And uh, I don't even I couldn't even start to know how but, you market, but but my show. Yeah, my my point is is that there are aspects of it that aren't doing as well as other aspects of it because I frankly don't have the the resources to do it and uh, or or to hire it done and um and so I I really understand it and that leads me to to this question is there a one size fits all model or is it different from from business to business, industry to industry, and, and entrepreneur to entrepreneur? Uh, it's definitely dif- different from industry to industry. There's, there, are, there are skill sets that all entrepreneurs need to have in order to scale a business that are, that are the same across the board. But then they're also, and I put that in the book, that you have to create your own list of skill sets that are unique to either you and your personality type or your business and industry that that might not have been found uh, in in the book as skill sets I list in my experience because each industry, each business is different. Um, but there are some core, the, the foundational characteristics are, are the same for everybody. And then having the vision to start to play business chess as I call it, where you're in, in the game of chess, you you learn to think strategically moves in advance and what is your opponent's counter moves. And the further you can see ahead, the better you should be at the game. Business works the same way, but it's a lot more complicated because there's a lot more variables as to what may or may not happen. So it's um, I, I talk about meditating to develop your mental toughness quotient and get more and more mentally tough so that you can literally think about the various moves and counter moves that may happen based on your moves as you play business chess, 
you know, five, six, seven, eight moves down the road or even years down the road. And it's a skill set you have to work on. And if you work on it, you can really develop it strongly. And they call those people visionaries, but it's it's really a skill of critical thinking. You know, it's with businesses that that grow, and I and I'm thinking more of bricks and mortar businesses. And there are certainly lots of businesses that don't require that. But I remember there used to be a, a saying that opening the second store was the hardest. Um, is is that still sort of true today? You know, I, I've heard that myself, and I've it, it hasn't been something that we've seen in our personal experience because I, I'll say that we generally learn a lesson that is not to open the second store if you're if this, unless you feel really good about the duplicatability of it, um, and every. We own probably a little over 20 companies right now, and they're not all in the franchising world. But we've we've made plenty of mistakes. A lot of what we've learned came from failure. We uh, we <laughs> failed enough in the rodeo production business to buy a ranch, and that's what we should have done instead of having a rodeo production company. <laughs> it, that does seem like the long way around, Scott. <laughs> yes, and and so I think one of the lessons I learned a long time ago was you you better have the model figured out before you open store number two, or at least pretty well figured out. And in that case, it should be easier. When someone realizes that it's time to expand, um, it, it's because they've reached some the end of something. They've, they've gotten as far as they can go with what they're presently doing. What's the first thing they need to do to kick it up a notch? And it would depend on whether they're, they have a duplicatable model that could be franchised or whether they just need to be scaled like the distillery, Tennessee Hills Distillery we just acquired in our rugged American spirits umbrella. Um, if you're a, it's not a franchisable business, it's a manufacturing business. And what that couple, Stephen and Jessica Callahan, his his grandfather was a pastor and a and a moonshine maker on a family farm in Jonesboro, Tennessee. His grandfather's brother was a bootlegger. His grandfather taught his dad. His dad. His dad taught him when he was eleven. Doesn't everybody? Moonshine. Doesn't everybody in Tennessee have somebody in the family that makes moonshine? You might think so, especially in eastern Tennessee. It, it, uh, <laughs> it, they've had two prohibitions. In the Civil War, there was uh, 600 distillers. They had the first prohibition then uh, to collect that manufacturing for the war effort. And coming out of the Civil War, that's that, that's what really created moonshining in Tennessee. And uh, some, some brands called Bickle and Jack Daniels um, created some laws to where you could only distill spirits in three counties. And that held true until about nine years ago. So it was only about nine years ago when they changed those laws in the state that you could that that other counties, I think it was 41, ended up approving the ability to distill spirits. So now there's about 80 distilleries in Tennessee, but uh, the 
the first prohibition kind of knocked the industry out and created moonshining. And the second prohibition, the big one in the 20s, um, led to the there only being two or three really big distilling companies in the state of Tennessee. How does a disruptable industry or a disruptable business uh, catch your attention? That is, we we actually have identified certain factors. Um, what? How good has their brand uh, storytelling creation become? Um, one that I really really like. If we're dealing with a, a an entrepreneur couple, like Daphne and I are, we call it a twofer, where one plus one doesn't equal two, it equals eleven, which is five times greater than two. So we actually have a metric called the twofer metric. And if uh, if a couple works in their business together that way, there's it's a, it's got a higher value component to it. And then we really look for those business owners who those entrepreneurs who are in that place you've spoken of several times this morning in the sense of uh, being stuck. They're they're trapped to the operations of the business and can't see their way up into a higher place. And that's where we come in and know how to build the support teams around them to smooth out the operations and then add to the marketing and um, make their brand storytelling value a lot greater. And, and how, do you, um, how do you explore for these things? I mean, are there certain industries or are there, um, I don't know, publications or... Um, ways that you find out who these people are or industries that you monitor and and maybe some industries that you're not interested in at all? Well, in today's world, the information at our fingertips, as you know, with the Internet, is sure. so abundant. And generally where we've lived, um, we just keep our eyes open and pay attention to the world around us, looking there's, there's millions of small business owners um, in America and around the world, and several million s- startups occur every year. So we keep our we we've almost developed a habit of looking at businesses. My wife used to tell me, "You don't drive by a business you don't want to own," and I, I laugh <laughs> and say, "That's kind of true." Um, and it, it's a fun game we play where we imagine, okay, what would it be like to own that business? What are the, the headaches and the hassles we can see? And we generally walk our dogs a couple times a day, and we'll talk about those things together and just share that common knowledge. And a lot of times we don't understand why somebody started the business they did because we don't see any possibility for it to scale. And a lot of times we do see one. So sometimes we just approach those people and look to form a partnership. In the franchising world, we choose industries, and then we study those industries, uh, biocure, germ remediation, hospital-grade disinfecting with electrostatic spraying. We acquired that company in 2018 from a young man who had helped start the company six years earlier, and he just couldn't figure out how to scale it. And we, we came in and bought the company and helped him then figure out how to scale it so it's it's a little bit of a it's it's not a, a pure formula 
we've just learned to live our life with our eyes open to the world around us. And we love looking at, thinking about, and studying any kind of business that we might see. Scott, did you start out as an entrepreneur? I did grow up in an entrepreneurial household. I often say my father was my first example of a rugged entrepreneur. And when I went to college at NC State University, I knew I was going to own my own business. I, was, I felt like I was somewhat unemployable because <laughs> employment just seemed restrictive. But by the, when, I was in, when I was 18, the drinking age was going from 18 to 19 and then 19 to 21. So my first business, and the statute of limitations have passed, so I'm not in trouble for it, but I bootleg beer during those days when I was going to college. Um, <laughs> I remember bootlegging beer up to Appalachian University, and I had a safety on the football team who was my middleman. And we, so I was a, my first business was illegitimate, and I was too young to think I could get caught, and thank goodness I didn't. And then my first legitimate business was a college newspaper while I was at NC State. We, we, we learned that we could sell coupon advertising to the various restaurants and clothing stores and record stores and then just take pictures of students on campus and do a, a bio on where they were from, what year they were. And we wrote some articles, and we had it inserted in the, the weekly newspaper, the technician at NC State, twice a month. And it was, we, we got that idea because when you would go to the bookstore, you would always try to grab a whole stack of these little coupons when you pay for your books. They had coupons for Subway and Domino's. Sure. And you never had enough coupons to last long enough. So we, we saw a shortage in the market, and that's generally where good entrepreneurialism really has a powerful force for that good disruption. When you identify a need or a shortage in a market space, and you come in and fill it, or fill it better than it's being filled right now, that's usually where you can find a very, very successful, scalable opportunity. And at what point did you own more than one business at a time? After I graduated NC State, I went to work in mergers and acquisitions, and corporate banking for Nations Bank before it was Bank of America. I did that for four years, A, to learn about merger transactions and financing, and B, I felt like that was the best career to get my eyes on a lot of different businesses to understand how they worked by having to analyze them. And so I was hired by one of my customers after about four years, and um that was my first offer of equity, which was something I had been looking for. And from that point on, I started to start other companies on the side. So probably from 26 years old, 25, 26 on, I've always owned multiple companies. And the better we got at scaling and team building, team building is the most important skill you can have in business development. The better I got at building teams, the easier it got to make a company successful, and the more companies we could own successfully. It sounds a little bit like uh, Steve Jobs going to work for Nolan Bushnell. 
his quote, my favorite quote in business is Steve Jobs, nothing great happens in a business without a team. And and there's a real knack to that. It isn't, um, in fact, Nolan Bushnell was on my show many years ago, and he'd written a book called Finding the New Steve Jobs. Wow. And, and, now that's uh, something I need to get. And and he said that uh, that corporations are getting it wrong. It's it's you don't find out about people from their resumes. You find out about people from their interests. That's very insightful. It, well, yeah, it, you, it, it was you, an interesting you have conversation. To get to know people. And and he was, um, it, you know, he couldn't be more proud of the fact that Steve Jobs had once worked for him and that he did it to learn the business and go out and do all that he did. <laughs> yeah, that that would be what a unique place to be, to be the person who actually first discovered Steve Jobs. That was, that's a very unique situation. Well, he did something else that I thought was really fascinating. He, you know, he had uh, uh, started Atari and was making all the games. And then he started the Chuck E. Cheese chain, which became this this whole um, national chain of businesses that bought Atari stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> is, I love serial entrepreneur stories. There, Wayne Hazingo is like that. Chad Khan is like that. You, they, they have a that business chess skill set, which includes team building, might be the most important skill in it. But they can't help but look at various industries and businesses and not look for a need that can be positively disrupting to fill in that business space and then go fill it. Well, I uh, this is a fascinating conversation, and, and, and I know we could talk about this uh, all day, but um, we're just about out of time. Scott, um, I'll remind listeners I'm talking to Carlton Scott Andrew. He goes by Scott. He is the author of a new book called The Rugged Entrepreneur, What Every Disruptive Business Leader Should Know. So he's uh, actually kind of uh, encouraging people to be disruptive. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but And they can do it, too. You know, rugged entrepreneurialism, Tom, it doesn't have... It's like like justice is supposed to be blind. It doesn't matter what somebody's socioeconomic standing is. It doesn't matter what their age is. You know, we talked about Colonel Sanders and how late in life he got started. It doesn't matter what their sex or race or religion is. You can find successful rugged entrepreneurs from every walk of life all around the globe, no matter what their political environment is. People, rugged entrepreneurs find a way to create that positive disruption in a business space and bring something of value forwards and it's a it's a it's a wonderful force it's one of the most powerful forces on the earth for creating good productivity well scott we've got to wrap it up there but i always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about about uh, your work past present and future do you have a website yeah, it's com. Perfect. Well, Scott, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. It's really been a pleasure to speak with you. All right. Take care. Thanks. Once again, that uh, 
that the title of the book is um, let me pull it out here so I'm looking right at it the rugged entrepreneur what every disruptive business leader should know by Carlton Scott Andrew who goes by Scott we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program Another five-minute mystery. Our story takes place in Green's Gap, a small town in the Southern Cavern District. Green's Gap Hospital, Dr. Melville speaking. Doctor, doctor, there's been an accident out at Echo Cavern. Accident? What kind of accident? Two men were exploring and they got lost last night. One's unconscious. You better come quick before he's dead. I hope you know how to get out to Echo Cavern, Len. Well, with the job of being town constable and ambulance driver, I reckon I know all there is to know about these parts. Ever been in the cavern, Len? Once, Doc Melville, when I was a boy. Nearly got my hide tanned off by my paw. Echo Cavern's a mighty treacherous place. You mean it's easy to get lost in it? Not only that, Doc. It's that cavern gas carbine. Mm, something. You mean carbon dioxide? Yeah, that's it. All of a sudden, you run into some of that stuff, and before you know it, Bean, you're out. Still, people seem to be going uh, exploring in there. More fools to be. I wouldn't go into them caverns, at least till I was not without a dog. A dog? What for? Well, if a dog keels over, then you know the gas is collecting. I'm afraid, Mr. Gaddy, your friend is dead. Oh, poor Patsy. It wasn't from the gas, was it, Doc? That's what it looks like to me. Why'd you go into that cavern anyway? Patsy asked me to. We'd never seen a cave before. How far did you go in? Well, it didn't seem very far, but all of a sudden we lost our way. Where was that? Well, how do I know whereabouts it was if we was lost? We tried to trace our way back, but it was no use. Patsy started to get scared. It's kind of funny to see a big guy like that get scared. Yeah, he is rather big, isn't he? Yeah, six foot four. The mob used to call us Mutt and Jeff. And then what happened? Well, I was a little scared myself, but we stuck together. You know, walking in the dark with only my flash from the car. All of a sudden, Pat's keeled over. From the gas? Yeah, that's what I figured. His head hit on a rock, and I guess that just about finished him off. I suppose you reckon yourself pretty lucky, mister. Yeah, sure. I figure it's because I'm only five foot three that I got out of there alive. Gas must have been just about a foot over my head. Yeah, and what do you think about that, Doc Melville? I think you better arrest Mr. Gotti for the murder of his friend Patsy. What was the flaw in Gaddy's story? Do you know it? In a moment, we'll hear from Lem and Dr. Melville. And now, let's see whether you're as observant as Lem and the doctor. Hey, copper, let me put my hands down. They're tired. When you're in Green Gap's jail, not before. I don't get it. It was a good story. I still can't figure out how you found out. Lem tells me they used to take dogs in the cavern because the gas is heavier than air. It collects on the floor. If you really meant gas, you would have keeled over first, before your pal Patsy. 
Well, what do you know? I tell you, nowadays in this murder racket, you need a college education. Another five-minute mystery. This five-minute mystery featured the voices of Rhonda Groves Young, Randy Zimmerman, Sean Cantwell, and yours truly, Tom Sumner. Stay tuned to the Tom Sumner Program for future mini-mysteries. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. If you are sick with COVID-19 or think you might have it, take steps to help protect other people from getting sick. Stay home except to get medical care. Call the doctor before visiting. Separate yourself from others who live with you. Wear a mask to protect others. Cover your coughs and sneezes with a tissue and clean your hands right away. Avoid sharing items with other people in your home. This includes things like towels and bedding. Be sure dishes are washed in hot water or the dishwasher before anyone else uses them. Stay aware of how you feel. If you start to have difficulty breathing or if you are worried about your health, call your doctor. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque riverway. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. 
The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. The Tom Sumner Program.com. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Ladies and gentlemen, in Philip Rapp's creation, The Bickerson. <laughs> This day will go down in history as precedent-shattering. John Bickerson is smiling. Despite the lateness of the hour, the fact that he has had perhaps the hardest day of his life at the office, John Bickerson is smiling. Why? Tell us, John. Two weeks vacation with pay. <sighs> Wait till I tell Blanche, brother, how I've longed for this. I'll sew myself into the bedsheets and sleep for ten days. John? Hello, Blanche. How is my beautiful wife? What? Would you like me to bring you a glass of milk and a cookie? And here's a little present for you. You look wonderful, honey. Oh, this is awful. What's the matter? This morning I burned my hand on the stove. I ripped my only pair of nylons. My inlay fell out, and now you come home drunk. What are you talking about? I'm not drunk and you know it. Then why are you so nice to me? What's the use? When I come home tired, can't smile, she beefs. When I come home and try to be pleasant, she accuses me. Put out the lights. You're not going to bed with your shoes on. Yes, I am. I work like a horse. I might as well sleep like a horse. Why did you bring me a present? What have you been up to, John? Bring his wife a present. Oh, stop it. A husband doesn't bring his wife a present unless he's done something wrong. I've brought you a million presents and I've never done anything wrong. Never. Not since the day I married you. I wish you'd let me sleep. Sure. Sleep. That's the easiest way out when you've got a guilty conscience. Blanche, I tell you, I haven't got a guilty conscience. Then why did you buy me an expensive present? It isn't an expensive present. It's the crummiest present I could find. I could believe that, all right. What is it? Why don't you open it and see? I bet you've gone and thrown away your money on some stupid thing I can't even use. Oh, you can use it fine. A home beauty outfit. It's got everything, just what you need. Wrinkle cream, freckle remover, hair darkener, false eyelashes, chin reducing strap. What kind of a present do you call this? What are you hinting at? How did I know what was in it? Nobody would use this but a homely woman. Oh, that's not true. All women use it. They do not. Only the homely ones and I wouldn't touch it. The sales girl in the drugstore said she uses it all the time, and she's not half as homely as you are. What? I mean, you're just as pretty. And that's just about what happened. You walked into a drugstore, saw a pretty face, and didn't know what you were buying. I didn't look at her face at all. If you were going to buy me a present, why didn't you buy me something I could use? Why didn't you get me an ounce of taboo? What's that? My favorite perfume. Well, you've got a dresser full of perfume. Taboo, Sabu, Snafu, Sterno. Enough perfume for any woman alive. Look at those bottles. They're all empty. 
And it's all your fault. You left the corks out and it evaporated. I leave the cork out of my bourbon, don't I? Well, what about it? That never evaporates. You never give it a chance. I don't see why I should have to do without because of your nasty habits. What do you think makes a thing dry up, John? Wish I knew. Don't be so funny. Oh, I'm not funny. I'm sleepy. You know I worked at the office 18 hours without a let-up? That's what you said you did. That's what I did. I did it for what I thought was a good reason, but now I'm sorry. Why? Forget it. What is it, John? What happened? (gasps) You lost your job. I didn't lose my job. I got two weeks vacation with pay. It's the first vacation I've had in seven years, and I wanted to enjoy it. But no, you wouldn't stand for that, would you? How can you say that, John? Of course. Of course I want you to enjoy yourself. Where's the money? In my wallet. Two whole weeks pay. Now, do you mind if I rest? You know, John, I haven't had a vacation either. A change of scene will do us both a world of good. If you're so tired, there's only one thing in the world for you to do. He's doing it. Where did he say that money was? Here it is. Two weeks' pay. Blanche, put that money back. Oh, I I thought you were sleeping, dear. What were you doing with that money? What's the matter, Blanche? I'm not doing anything. I'm just counting it to see if they gave you the right amount. It's the right amount. Put it back and go to sleep. You needn't talk like that. I wasn't going to steal it. Who said you were? Just like you to make a crack like that. I didn't make any cracks at all. Go on. Call the police. Have me arrested. Put me in prison. Nobody's putting you in prison. They'll lock me up in solitary confinement. Rats running all over me in my cell. And I stand helpless, shaking, behind iron bars. No way to escape. Blanche. Oh, why don't you send me a hacksaw, John? You're getting hysterical. Well, don't go accusing me of taking your money. It's half mine anyway. It's all yours. All I want is sleep. I don't see why we can't go away on a vacation for a few days. You go. I told you I'm going to do nothing but sleep for the whole two weeks. You'll have to get up sometime. Not even once. How are you going to collect your unemployment insurance? What unemployment insurance? You're going to be out of work for two weeks. You can't collect unemployment insurance if you've got a job. If you're not working, you haven't got a job, have you? That's different. Why? I don't know why. Nobody does it, that's all. Well, what's the good of unemployment insurance if you don't get any money when you're unemployed? Being on vacation is not the same as being unemployed. Don't tell me. What? Clara's husband, Barney, has never had a job his whole life, and he collects his unemployment check every week. He can't collect any checks if he doesn't work. I thought you said they only pay you when you don't work. That's right. But you have to work before you can be out of work so you have a legitimate claim for the money you earned that you don't get. I don't get it. Oh, leave me alone. And I'm telling you now, John, you've got two weeks off and you're going to do one of two things. Do you hear me? I hear you. Either you start collecting your unemployment insurance or else you fill in those two weeks with another job. Another job? This is my vacation. I don't care. It won't hurt you to work those two weeks. And we could use the money. Okay, I'll get another job in the morning. You say it, but you won't do it. Do it now. What? Go on, get up.
get a job, you loafer. What kind of a job can I get at two o'clock in the morning? What's the matter with being a night watchman? I won't do it. I won't do it. You've got no right to deprive me of my two weeks off. I don't care what happens. I won't get another job. All right, then. Promise you'll take me away on a vacation. There's no way out. I promise. Will you swear? Every minute that we're away. I know where we'll go. Lake Tahoe. I'll only have to buy a few more dresses, and you can wear your dungarees all the time. Okay. Just tell them you came in from fishing, and if it gets cold, I've got just the thing. Let me show you what I picked up on sale yesterday. I don't want to see it. Just look at this, John. Isn't it stunning? What's so stunning about a bath rug? It's a fur cape, silly. Well, where's the fur? Well, that's the way it's supposed to look. It's the very latest style. Sheared beaver. Sheared beaver? It's been clipped. So have I. You have not. This is worth every penny, John. You know I'm a good judge of furs. Oh, sure. The past two years you bought a bald mink and a plucked skunk. Well, what's wrong with them? The mink stinks and the skunk shrunk. Blanche, how much did you pay for this one? Only $94. $94? Oh, Blanche, you didn't. Get that money back, you hear me? Get that money back. Don't get hysterical. As soon as the... Blanche, how could you do this to me? I deny myself everything. I've been sewing heels on your old pocketbooks and wearing them for shoes. I've been eating the padding out of my overcoat shoulders to save on breakfast cereal. I don't even drink my bourbon anymore. I just chew the cork and hit myself on the head with the bottle. I never spend a nickel on myself. You bought a bag of popcorn yesterday. That wasn't popcorn. My teeth fell out from malnutrition. I'm warning you, Blanche. Blanche, you're not going to get away with it. What do you want? Hello, Bickerson. This is Mr. Guernsey. Yes. Uh, oh, hello, Mr. Guernsey. I hate to be calling you at this hour, Bickerson, but something very urgent has come up. What happened? I just received word that our Chicago plant burned down, and we weren't covered. This morning, I filed bankruptcy proceedings, and I'm closing up for good. What? I trust you'll find a new position, and I do wish you good luck. Well, uh, thanks. By the way, Bickerson, would you mind sending back that two-week salary I gave you? I need every penny I can scrape together. Yeah, um, sure, I'll send it. Uh, goodbye. Well, did you hear that, Blanche? No, what was it? My boss, Mr. Guernsey. I lost my job. <gasps> wonderful! Wonderful? What's so wonderful about it? Now you can collect your unemployment insurance. Oh, Blanche. Good night, John. Oh.
Alexander Zanjic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 